the one advantage that the United States and NASA has over China's space industry at the moment is this vibrant commercial space sector. And so if you want to maintain an edge in space, you'd better harness that and you'd better support it because China is doing that unquestionably. Is advanced manufacturing dead in America? Not if Elon Musk has anything to do with it. SpaceX's early days constitute one of the most remarkable and frankly inspiring engineering and business stories of the 21st century. And as America thinks about how to invest in future industry, I thought it would be worthwhile reflecting on SpaceX's early days. Eric Berger is a senior space editor at Ars Technica and recently published Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Days that Launched SpaceX. Co-hosting is Corey Fitz, who spent a decade in the U.S. Army and is the creator of the fantastic Tychonautica substack, which covers the Chinese space system, spelling in the show notes. Eric and Corey, welcome to China Talk. Eric, why is space so hard? <laughs> well, you know, you've got to get to enormous velocities to get into orbit around Earth. You've got to get to about Mach 23. And so to do that, we use chemical propulsion. There's really no better way that we've come across yet to get into space. And that's essentially a very large bomb when you're building a rocket like that. And so it takes an explosion to get into space. And then once you're in space, you're surrounded by a vacuum. So you have these thin aluminum walls separating you and in certain death. And then to come back to Earth, you've got to lose Mach 23 within a matter of minutes, and you've got to come through the atmosphere without burning up, and then you've got to land somehow safely. So space, from the moment you take off from the Earth until the moment you come back, is trying to kill you. The physics of it are brutal, and there's really no room for error. So we don't need to do an entire history of the U.S. space program on this episode, but why don't you take us maybe from the 80s to early 2000s? 2000s and explain why there haven't been other SpaceXs before there was a SpaceX. You know, back in the early 1980s, NASA came up with the space shuttle. And the way this was sold to the White House and, and to the U.S. government was that the space shuttle would lower the cost of access to space. It would fly often. It could take lots of people to space. And as a matter of fact, it also originally was designed to be the military's only way of getting its satellites into space. So like the space shuttle was the be all and end all. And it was working out that way right up until the Challenger accident in 1986. And then the military said, no, no, we need our own means of access to space. And that enabled Boeing and Lockheed to build their own independent lines of rockets. And so in the 1990s and early 2000s, the way it worked was like NASA had the space shuttle to launch astronauts and satellites. And then the military had its, its rockets, the Atlas rockets and the Delta rockets to get into space. All three of those launches were extraordinarily expensive. And so if you were DirecTV or someone else and you wanted to get a satellite to geostationary space, you didn't go to the United States, even if you were a U.S. company. You primarily went to Europe with the Ariane rockets or to Russia with its Proton rocket for commercial launch services. And, and there really just was no support for a commercial company to come in and fill that role. A lot of companies did try, like there were entrepreneurs before Elon Musk. Andy Beal was a Texas banker who put more than 200 million into his company. There's a company called Amrock, Microcosm. There's a bunch of companies actually that tried to do what SpaceX ultimately wanted to do. And, and that was to lower the cost of access to space. But most of those companies had failed simply because you had the established order of things in the United States, the shuttle, Lockheed and Boeing, and, and that was basically it. How would you assign the blame in terms of institutional rigidity, like lobbyists, like physics challenges? I would say that all of the above, but the fact of the matter is it's extraordinarily expensive to design, develop, test, and fly a rocket, even a small one. You're talking of the way it had always been done before. It was hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of people. And you're a long way from when you first designed 
design your rocket to making any kind of money back unless the government is paying you to do that. And that's what it did for Boeing and Lockheed, right? And the people who built the space shuttle, the contractors. But no one was paying SpaceX to build the Falcon 1 rocket. They were having to build that on spec and then earn that money back from contracts for launch. And so you weren't making a profit until you started launching satellites for countries or for companies and for governments. It's just extraordinarily difficult and it's a capital intensive business. You know, there's the old joke, Jordan, that, you know, if you want to become a millionaire in space, you start out as a billionaire. It's the sort of the same story of Palantir, right? In another Defense Prime story where it takes an independently wealthy person who's willing to put up with all this crap in order to build a product that eventually the government will finally be able to say yes to. That's exactly right. It's it's the same thing with Jeff Bezos. He and Elon Musk were, for a time, the two entrepreneurs building rockets in the United States. Now, since SpaceX has had success, we've actually seen a bunch of other companies in the United States come along because they've shown that it's possible to do it. And so it's easier to get venture capital funding and, and other sources of money. So why did Elon want to make rockets in the first place? So after he left PayPal, he was actually booted off the board of directors for PayPal, but he took away about $180 million and he was trying to figure out what to do. And he'd always been interested in space and he'd always genuinely felt like humans ought to settle other worlds and that Mars was the place to go. He saw that NASA didn't have a Mars program back in 2001 and, and said, well, hmm, maybe NASA needs more money for this. And so he catched this idea to design a terrarium and, and buy a Russian ICBM and launch it to Mars and then have a little webcam sort of monitor this terrarium as, as little animals and plants grew on the surface of Mars <laughs> and then and then send that back to Earth. And basically this would show the world that, that life on Mars was possible and, and boy, we really ought to send people there. But what he told me was as he was going along and doing this now, it's fairly well known that he had problems with the Russians, right? And buying an ICBM, they looked down on him and didn't really want to sell him in the, the ICBM or the rocket, the launch vehicle. And so he was having troubles there, but he also said, you know, look, I came to realize that even if you doubled NASA's budget, there was no way that they were we're going to get to Mars using the, he called them the horses in the barn, the horses in the stable. Well, he's talking about Lockheed and Boeing because their vehicles were so expensive. And even back then he, he felt step one is lowering the cost of access to space. And you do that by making rockets reusable. And so he just realized that he was going to have to do it himself. Yeah, I love the story you tell, Eric, where the Russians, every time he goes back, they just raise the price as a joke because they think this guy's so ridiculous. Another problem with the Lockheeds and Boeings of the world seems to be the mentality that they took to the engineering challenges in the first place. One of the most interesting themes of your book is the hiring philosophy that Musk took to his engineers. He would take these 23 year olds, but also he did need to sort of bring in more senior talent to guide the young bucks who were working those 90 hour weeks. How did he think about reframing the sort of engineering paradigm when it came to building rockets? If you think about it, the big companies, the big contractors at the time had no incentive to keep costs down because the Department of Defense and NASA in the United States were paying them basically all of their expenses plus fees. And so if the cost of the development program went up, that was okay. If the government changed its mind and put in a change order, that was great because you could extend the lifetime of the co development contract or you could add the cost. And if you were getting cost plus a 10% fee, that just meant more bottom line money for your contractors. The blessing and the curse that Elon had was that he only had $100 million to start. And so 
you are disincentivized to waste money and you're incentivized to do things as cheaply and as quickly as possible. So it was kind of the opposite incentives of a cost plus fee structure. Let's talk a little bit about the engineers themselves. You do a great job in this book of portraying some of their stories and the kind of emotional connection that they had to the dream. What was it like as a young engineer working in those early days of SpaceX? Well, SpaceX was pretty much your whole life. Florence Lee, she was a structures engineer who was at Stanford when she was hired away by SpaceX in 2003, told this story about how she had this great social life up in the Bay Area of California. And she decided to take this job at SpaceX because she was kind of inspired by the mission and and liked the people there. But she says as she was driving down into the Los Angeles Valley for the first time, she started crying because she realized she didn't know anyone in LA and she'd left her whole social life behind. She said that lasted for about two to three weeks when she realized that working at SpaceX, she would have no time for a social life. Working on that Falcon 1 rocket and being involved in that program, she said, just became her entire life. Her coworkers were her best friends. They were working 80 or 90 hour weeks. She told me just like, I was okay with it. This is just all I wanted to do with my life. What Elon Musk did was, first of all, he had a great talent for identifying really brilliant, hardworking young engineers. And then he was great at motivating them by giving them difficult challenges and enough resources and the ability to think outside the box to solve those challenges. It's interesting thinking about this story in the context of 996 culture in China. Lots of stories about folks working at e-commerce companies and social media companies getting burned out and really frustrated. And I think there's something to be said for young people working really hard. And it's not necessarily just that the hours are what gets you. It's not feeling like you're doing something that has like a broader social or global impact. And that's really when you see people happy to to hand their lives over to an organization is when they truly believe in the mission and feel like they're doing meaningful work, which is contributing to it. And it seems like for a lot of the the folks who are involved in SpaceX, they really saw this, this vision of, reducing the cost of a space exploration to be something that really resonated with them. That is a great point. Elon had a clear mission from the start, which was to make life multiplanetary. But obviously, the short-term goal was getting that first rocket in orbit. And imagine if you had gone to work at SpaceX in 2005 and gotten in the ground floor of the Falcon 1 program. Or imagine if you'd gone to NASA in 2005 and gotten in on the ground floor of the Orion spacecraft. Say you're a 22-year-old engineer, you're brilliant. Now, 16 years later, SpaceX has flown 110 missions. They've done Cargo Dragon, Crew Dragon. They operate more satellites than any country or company in the world. They've flown Falcon 1, Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy. They're doing Starship. And Orion has flown one mission, uncrewed, a boilerplate spacecraft to about 3,600 miles above the surface of the Earth. And it may fly a second mission next year. If you went to SpaceX... You know, you weren't working a 40-hour government job, but you also weren't sitting behind a desk filling out paperwork or in, in sitting in meetings or dealing with insane levels of bureaucracy. You were out there building hardware, touching hardware, and the things that you were doing, you could see those going into space months after you'd worked on them. Or in the case of the Starship program, it's weeks. They're rolling out these steel barrels, stacking them, and then blowing them up weeks after they're built. You can see that you're making a difference, and it's a different kind of engineering right? That sort of is is really driven to make a difference in the world. I mean, nothing against NASA, but you're going to go to SpaceX because that's where things are happening with such speed. And it's interesting also thinking about this in the context of this big debate about the the importance of having 
semiconductor fabs in the US and whether or not you need to have that real on the ground experience of having to deal with the manufacturing side of things. It's also interesting, Eric, thinking about the speed at which the talent was able to learn and advance by having that sort of iterative feedback and actually being able to work on these things, which would change and evolve quickly as opposed to doing it in a traditional government procurement process where everything is already written out to spec beforehand and you don't see this rapid learning necessarily going on. Yeah, I agree with that. It's this iterative design method that that was one of the unique things that, that Elon brought to the space industry that it didn't really exist before. And I think probably he got that from software where you go through, write some code, run the program, see what happens, and then fix the code. It's very different from a traditional government space program, which is much more of a linear design where you spend years optimizing the design and building the hardware. And, and then finally you get an all up test five or 10 years later it's much slower. I think it's much less inspiring to the people because, you know, during an iterative design program like SpaceX has done, there's lots of opportunities along the way to celebrate your successes or failures. Whereas with a linear design program, like with Orion, you know, you had one flight in 16 years. SpaceX almost didn't make it. The narrative of Falcon 1's fourth flight brought me to tears in the way you wrote it, Eric. I think the story's worth telling just for posterity's sake. They launched their third rocket, in August of 2008, this was the third attempt with the Falcon 1 to get to orbit. And everyone assumed that this was going to be successful. Gwen Shotwell and, and the VP of machining, Bob Reagan, were kind of in the back of the factory in Hawthorne, you know, taking shots on a shot luge. It was a very festive environment because they'd failed twice, but they sort of thought they'd, they'd caught every problem. And they put a bunch of commercial payloads on this third launch. And then it goes up and it fails. And all of a sudden, you know, the company doesn't have any more money. Nobody wants to sign a launch contract with them. And they've got the parts for one more rocket. And so Elon got his team together the day after, the Falcon 1 team together the day after that third failure and said, you have six weeks. And basically the, the fate of the company is riding on this final launch. And as I, you know, as I discuss in the book, they had to cut all sorts of corners to make, you know, a launch attempt within that time period up into including flying the the first stage on a C-17 aircraft across the Pacific where it starts to um, implode um, due to a pressure differential that they hadn't anticipated. And, you know, it wrecked the inside of that tank. And so they ended up on a desert island in the Pacific rebuilding that entire first stage. One of the details I love about it is normally you pressure test your vehicle with nitrogen or some kind of inert gas because if something goes wrong, that's much less hazardous. Well, on Kwajalein, they didn't have any nitrogen. They wouldn't anticipate needing to pressure test it, the vehicle again, and they only had kerosene and liquid oxygen. And so that's what they used to, to pressure test their tanks. And they entirely could have just lost that tank. And the company would have gone down in history as a failure. It's quite a, quite a dramatic moment. And I did tell it in a pretty dramatic fashion because it's a dramatic story. When you think about what has happened since then, all that they've been able to accomplish, it just might have come to naught. How, how is this movie not made yet? Is he like holding on to the rights or something? Yeah, I think that may happen. We'll, we'll have to see. 
We'll have to see. There's, we've had plenty of discussions. Just curious. I know that your book focuses on the, the early days where everyone's working crazy hours because they're trying to, to get this thing off the ground. But from what you've heard and what you understand of the company now, is that still the tempo that everyone is operating at? Early on, back when it was mostly just Elon's money, they were severely understaffed. You had about 150 people trying to do three or four jobs a piece. And so that's one reason why they worked these insane hours. They got their first NASA contract in 2006, the COTS deal, which was a development program for, for Falcon 9 and Cargo Dragon. That really allowed them to, to scale up in terms of hiring. And then the CRS contract later, they got more people and they got more professional and they went from 80 to 100 hours a week to 60 to 80 hours a week. And it became a little bit more like a traditional space company. But if you look at the Starship program in South Texas, if you fast forward to today, there are parallels between what SpaceX was doing with the Falcon 1 program and this Starship vehicle, which is this large spacecraft and rocket Elon Musk and SpaceX are trying to build. This is the vehicle that they think could carry humans in the next decade. And they're, they're trying to develop it and they're blowing up lots of them in South Texas. That development program is a lot like the Falcon 1. And I'm pretty sure the engineers involved with that one are working really long hours. I think this leads into a really good discussion about China's reaction to the rise of commercial space. SpaceX has unquestionably been aided by the US government. They get contracts from NASA. Uh, both for crew missions to the International Space Station. Now they get military launch contracts. And they had to fight for all of that against the, the traditional players that we talked about earlier. But they've unquestionably succeeded. And now they are the Goliath as opposed to David of the global launch industry. And because SpaceX has been successful, a bunch of other companies have come along, right? It, it's become much easier if you're an entrepreneur to say, hey, look, the space industry has the potential to generate profit. We're going to be the next SpaceX of launch. We're going to be the next SpaceX of satellites. We're going to be the next SpaceX of in-space transportation. For a long time, they were the Uber of this or the Uber of that. In the space industry, it's the SpaceX of whatever. And if you look at private capital flowing into space, it's grown immensely since the first Falcon 1 launch in 2008. It's pretty dramatic. Before, it was basically billionaires having fun. Yes, that's right. There was no real business case for new entrants in the market. Now there's this really vibrant commercial space sector in the United States, and you have companies doing Earth observation satellites, you have companies doing launch, you have companies in space transportation, you've got companies doing cargo delivery to the moon, and the rest of the world has really been struggling with how to grapple with that. Russia's response has basically been, you can't trust SpaceX. People don't want to ride in Crew Dragon because they don't want to be crash test dummies. But they're really falling behind. Europe is struggling because they have a very institutional approach to space. They have to satisfy the dozens of members of the European Space Agency that contribute it. They, they just don't have the, a really vibrant commercial space scene. They're trying, taking small steps toward it. The most coherent response has actually been in China. Because, and Corey maybe could talk a little bit more about this, but you know, when they decided to start transferring some of their technology to the private sector, I think that was a clear recognition of the rise of commercial space. Corey, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I would. China began opening up private investment into space in about 2012, in particular, was a big moment. Where was SpaceX then? Because the impression that I've gotten is that SpaceX was a big catalyst in, in that decision. Right. So SpaceX successfully launched the Falcon 1 in 2008. It successfully launched the Falcon 9 in 2010. And then by 2012, it had started to deliver cargo to the International Space Station. 
And so it had shown that private company could do rocket development. They were a long way from the juggernaut that they would become five years later. But for keen observers, you could look at SpaceX in 2012 and say, okay, this private company is much more efficient at developing rockets than the government. Because after the commercial cargo program was a success and SpaceX started delivering it, NASA did a study and said, if we had developed the Falcon 9 and cargo dragon capability, the way we'd always done it, right? The way we did Apollo, the way we did space shuttle, it would have cost us four to 10 times more and it would have been slower. And so for keen observers, which I have to believe the Chinese were in 2012, they could see that the private sector had something going. Eric, could you put some numbers around the cost differential that SpaceX was able to achieve in this story? For the development of the Cargo Dragon spacecraft. So this is a spacecraft that could bring several tons to this International Space Station. The Falcon 9 rocket, which is a powerful orbital vehicle, although it certainly wasn't in its final form back then. And for the launch site, Space Launch Complex 40 in Florida. So you got you got a spacecraft, a cargo spacecraft, good rocket, and a launch site. And NASA's total investment at that point was $400 million. That's less money now than the space agency is spending every year for ground systems, it spends like five to six hundred million a year, basically just to, for Florida to muck around with a launch tower and, and training and all this stuff. It's just an enormous difference in terms of efficiency and, and speed. Let's start the clock at 2012. What changed then and how has the Chinese system responded to the rise of commercial space? I'll talk about what SpaceX did from 2012, basically to the present day. And then Corey can talk about what China was doing, I think, at that time. So SpaceX had contracts with NASA to launch satellites and, and cargo. And it started to get a bunch of commercial satellites because it was selling the Falcon 9 rocket for $60 million, which was a heck of a lot less than the Proton and the Europeans were launching commercial satellites for. So they started getting all these launches. And so their first challenge was building enough rockets to meet that demand. Because it's one thing to launch a Falcon 9 a couple times a year, and it's another to get to like 10 or more. So their first challenge was to get to Cadence, which they started to achieve by 2015. And then they moved into reuse. By the end of 2015, they'd landed their first rocket on the Florida coast. By the middle of 2016, they landed for the first time on a drone ship. And by a year and a half later, they were flying those rockets again. And 2018 was really a pivotal moment because they introduced the final version of their Falcon 9 rocket, the Block 5. And this is the one they've, they've reused up to nine times now. And it, they're able to fly it again within four weeks. And by 2015, they mastered cadence. And by 2018, they had shown that rocket reuse was really the future. I love this line you have in your book where like the only time Trump was impressed with science was when he saw the, the video of the rocket landing. Anyways, Corey, let's do a brief history of Chinese space in that time frame. Yeah, about 2012, China decides to officially open up private investment into, into aerospace. You have a number of launch companies formed so far to have reached orbit are iSpace and Galactic Energy. There are a couple other ones that are, are really active particularly land space. And there's also a whole bunch of smaller names where it's not sure, clear exactly are these really legitimate companies or not, or, or will they eventually turn into some other sort of manufacturer rather than an actual successful launch company. But I would say that the big thing to note about China that I think is really distinct from the US is that it's not just that China has industrial policy. They also have state-owned enterprises. And it's not just Boeing or Lockheed Martin that are at stake here. Cask is the, the sort of number one state-owned launch contractor. And there's also Kazakh. Between them, they are the bulk of the traditional old space 
infrastructure. And so far, all of the smaller companies are just small launch companies. I am concerned that I don't really see China getting to the point where they're putting these smaller private companies in charge of any kind of government systems in the same way that SpaceX is being awarded contracts to take things up to the uh, International Space Station. I know that's still a ways off, but I think that's the, the fundamental difference in the kind of tension in the Chinese system. They want private investment. They're also not really sure how far they want that to go. It's interesting you say that because that same kind of tension exists in the United States. And originally, the line was drawn at low Earth orbit. It was okay for the commercial companies to play in, in LEO, and NASA would support that. And then SpaceX built the Falcon Heavy rocket, which has the capability to go, you know, send large payloads beyond low Earth orbit. Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin rocket company are building a big rocket called New Glenn, which again is optimized really for delivering satellites to geostationary space, but also cargo to the moon. And and then SpaceX is building Starship, which is intended to go to Mars. And so all of a sudden, NASA was saying, it's our job to go beyond low Earth orbit. And the private company said, no, wait a minute, we can play there too. And there's emerging evidence that they're going to be better at that than NASA and traditional practices are too. It'll be really interesting, I think, Corey, to see in China these more nimble players if they are able to eat into some of that. And maybe just the governance and, and the regulations there will prohibit that. But my sense is that, that if those companies really want to be successful and profitable, you've got to open up the horizon for them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. One of the, the the companies to really look at in China in terms of how much is the state sector going to try to maintain its, its monopoly is X-Space, which has the Kuaizhou rockets. They're essentially state-owned, but they are more um, commercial player than Kask or Kazakh is. And there's been news recently that they're moving into liquid rockets. I feel like that is one of the ways in which the state sector is, is trying to compete with the barely getting off the ground private sector. You know, as, as someone who lives very much in the Western world and does not have much of a grasp on China, but is scrambling to keep track of their industry, it is somewhat bewildering because there are an enormous number of companies that are players. And one of the questions that I've always had is, are they coming up with their own ideas? Are they simply commercializing stuff that the Chinese government side didn't want to, to develop? Or are they sort of expressly given the wink, wink, nod, nod that, that they need to be emulating what the most aggressive and successful Western companies have been doing? Because some of the designs that I see look a lot like a Falcon 9 from these commercial companies. So I'm, I'm wondering, what is the Chinese government hoping to get out of these commercial companies that it's, it's helped to set up? I, I think that's a really good question. What does the Chinese government want? I'm, I'm often really not sure as well. It seems more like China had the feeling, oh, we need to catch up. We need to respond somehow. We can't allow the international private sector to completely overwhelm us. But I don't think that they necessarily have a really coherent strategy. There's a lot of pieces of this that don't really mesh well together. I think there's probably a lot of competing interests at stake here. So I think we're just going to have to see how things shake out. In terms of how much is state directed, the impression I get is it really depends uh, on the particular firm. I think there are a couple companies where I, I have heard people suggest that these technologies, they appear to be something that they got from the state. And that might be you know, the case. It's also a case for a lot of American companies have essentially purchased things from NASA 
on that. I would say that the interest in SpaceX and the interest in Elon Musk, from what I have seen, appears to be very organic in China. I don't think that's coming from the government. A lot of people in China are really into Elon Musk. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about Chinese intentions for space and how to divine that, right? You and I read the reports coming out of Cassie, which is affiliated with the U.S. Air Force, and you can read all the policy papers and try to like weave together a narrative, which you can interpret in varying levels of scariness. There are so many open questions, right? It's not like if you spend the money, you'll get the outcome that you want. Elon is kind of a black swan event in all of this because he is a unique personality. Even if you stack him up against Jeff Bezos, who has very much the same grandiose ambitions. Blue Origin is 20 years old and they've never launched a rocket to orbit. And as I say, SpaceX has done it 110 times and is way, way ahead of Blue Origin in, in terms of their accomplishments. He really is a unique individual and you take the good with the bad, right? The good is that he does things in both the automotive and space industries that are, are pretty mind-blowing because those industries were so established and so entrenched and he managed to really disrupt both of them at the same time. It's really crazy to think about. And so he is a compelling figure in that sense. It's not like there are many of them in the world. And if someone like that were to exist in China, would they have the freedom to be as disruptive as in, in the United States? What do you think really accounts for the success of SpaceX versus Blue Origin? That's a particular one that I've really found confusing because I understand the the established players like Boeing or something have their way of doing things. But why has Blue Origin been so slow? So Blue Origin has had a really difficult job scaling up. You know, for the first five to seven years, they were really kind of a hobby shop where they were looking at alternative ways to get to orbit. And then they started tinkering with small engines. And then Bezos got more serious about 2012 or 2013, started pushing forward the New Shepard program. At the same time, he was also starting to get much more interested in like Amazon Prime and, and Hollywood and sucked into that. And so he was spending less time at Blue Origin. As he was spending more money on Blue Origin, he started hiring more traditional industry people. In, in my mind, it's kind of the oldest new space company you could imagine. They're very much acting like a traditional space company and now trying to go out and get government contracts and things like that. By contrast, one of the remarkable things about SpaceX is that 19 years into the business, they're still seeking to be the most disruptive force possible in space. They're not resting on the laurels of a fully reusable Falcon 9. They're continuing to do crazy tech development things. Elon Musk today remains the driving force behind that company, both spiritually and in terms of the engineering challenges that he's still throwing out there today. He has this energy about him that if you spend any time around him, it's exhausting because he's always going and always pushing himself and those around him forward at a pretty breathtaking pace. Eric, one of the themes aside from personal magnetism that you pointed to is this idea of having your CFO also be your chief engineer. Yeah, yeah Elon gave me a great quote. He said, he's, most companies you have the chief engineer over here and the CFO over here and, and the, the engineer says something to, to do this and he's got to go convince the CFO it's necessary. For SpaceX, the CFO and the engineer are in the same head and, and the CFO already knows to trust the engineer. <laughs> I think that's just one of the many ways that they're able to move quickly because Elon decides that something is important. He's like, yeah, go do it. He's not like, go do it next week. He's like, no, go do it right now and get back to me in 24 hours to let me know the progress you made. And if you run into any hurdles that you can't get through, email me and I'll take care of it. 
I was sitting in a meeting on a Friday in, in September 2019, and they were discussing Raptor issues, and it was involving test stands. They needed to rebuild an elevator that went up this large test stand at their facility in Texas because it had gotten destroyed through the Falcon 9 process. And, and he's like, okay, we can get a construction elevator out there and you can start working on it on Monday. This was a Friday. He expected a construction elevator on the site by Monday, right? Work through the weekend to make that happen so that they could start start working on that, you know, big test stand. On one hand, working for him is gratifying because you see progress every day. On the other hand, it's exhausting because you're the one that has to bring that progress about. Yeah, I, I could see that. It was almost exhausting reading the book, honestly, <laughs> listening to what these people went through. It was a wild story. Um, every writer wants to hear that, that you were exhausted having to get through their turgid <laughs> prose. So thank you for that, Corey. No, just uh, it was an exhilarating book. And I, I just can't imagine doing what these people were, were going through. Yeah, no, it's, it, was, it was super impressive. And it was a blast to go back and talk to all of them because, you know, 10 to 15 years had passed. They had time to really reflect on it. But their memories were still pretty fresh. It was an enormously fun project. Other than the lower cost that SpaceX was able to bring to this, are there any other ways that you think that SpaceX is fundamentally different from the established players and other ways that they've changed the industry? I would say they changed it in a couple fundamental ways. First of all, is the speed at which they do things. It really has put other companies to shame and forced them to act more aggressively, or at least talk about acting more aggressively. They've changed the paradigm, I think. Elon has talked enough about the evils of cost plus contracts, that there's a general expectation now in the space industry that you're doing fixed price contracts, where you just basically get paid a certain amount, and if it costs more, that's your problem. He's really pushed on that as opposed to cost plus contracts. And then finally, I think there's just been this dramatic shift in the mindset over the reusability of rockets. Five years ago, when they landed the first rocket on a boat, everyone still kind of thought that was a novelty. And now it's pretty much the business plan for the development of rockets going forward, unless you're the space launch system or something like that. And uh, what's his name? He said he would never go into reusable vehicles and that he would eat his hat yeah. if he did. Peter Beck ate his hat. Yeah. Peter's great. Um, That's an interesting one to watch because they definitely are competing. No question about it. And it's interesting because they're really the first company, at least Western company, to come into the Falcon 9 territory and try to take it on with a new launch vehicle. I have a lot of respect for Peter Beck, but boy, that's a that's a difficult challenge to solve. So I wish him luck because, as I say, Peter's fun. And the video they did where he sort of ate his hat, it was pretty good, pretty clever. Do you think that there is still room for other launch companies in, in the market? You've got SpaceX, which has had so much success. And then now it seems a bit crowded to me. It's market. absolutely a crowded market. And I do think SpaceX wants to own it all. They would be happy to have all the business and not care. There will always be the potential for the other companies. Like the Department of Defense is always going to want a second independent way to get to space. So there will always be another company, whether that's United Launch Alliance or Blue Origin with big rockets. And then in the small space, I think there's room for the rocket lab and then maybe one or two other companies on the smaller side, but not 10, maybe one or two more. Do you think that there's a real risk of if the Chinese launch market really gets off the ground and if the Chinese government is providing a lot of support, do you think there's a risk of American companies being undercut by that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've got to remember a global launch market is about a third of it is national defense satellites. So China is always going to launch those on Chinese rockets. The Department of Defense is going to launch those on American rockets. Europe is going to launch those on European rockets. Another third of the market is institutional satellites like a NASA 
private satellite, which is probably going to launch on American rockets, although there are exceptions. European satellites are typically going to launch on European satellites, although there are exceptions. And then China's going to launch its Earth observation satellites and things on its own rockets, right? Same with Russia. That's just how it works. So only about a third of the global market is in play. Before SpaceX came along, the commercial market, the U.S. had none of it for reasons we talked about. Now SpaceX has captured some of that. So it's really the companies are, are trying to capture that market. And so you need some of that to survive. But the more important customers for a lot of these companies are defense. Virgin Orbit. I think they have a very limited commercial market. They're hoping to get DOD money. Rocket Lab was founded with the goal of not ever launching a military payload. And now that's central to their business. So commercial satellites are nice and important, but for most of these companies, you've got to have government contracts to subsist. But certainly I could see a world where Chinese success in launch does push back the number of viable competitors in the United States. If you go back 15 years or before SpaceX, it was basically Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and then there was the Orbital Sciences had Pegasus, which was doing one or two launches a year. But again, that was mostly DOD stuff. So it, it's not too much a concern because the, the government is still going to be the biggest client, the biggest customer anyway. I think so. Although the big question in the 2020s is how widespread these broadband from LEO networks are. So like Starlink, Project Kuiper, Telesat. OneWeb, China's talking about doing one. So a lot of the business cases for these small launch companies are predicated on those markets. I think that'll be a real fight over those. I don't know who ultimately will prevail. It seems a lot like a chicken and egg kind of thing to me. You're creating the possibility of a larger market for satellites because now we've got much cheaper rockets. And there's really the question of, will that materialize? Or If you bring the cost of launch down significantly, do you increase the number of satellites or customers that are willing to pay to go to space? And the data I've seen on that's so far suggest that prices haven't come down far enough, at least yet, to open up that market more widely or to create a larger satellite market. That, that again, could change. The big players are still defense contracts and these broadband from LEO networks. What's on the horizon aside from your Starlinks of the world, which for the uninitiated is fast internet from the sky? What other business models could be up? For a long time, the big commercial market was sending large satellites to geostationary space. That market has eroded. And so it's being filled somewhat by these constellations in low Earth orbit for internet from space. Another potential market you could envision is surface stuff, especially if NASA continues with the Artemis program. I think there will be a pretty healthy commercial ecosystem. But we're still waiting for some kind of killer application in microgravity. And right now that appears to be these broadband internet constellations that everyone is interested in building out. And so that's the hot area. Maybe to conclude, Eric, you know, there's a lot of discussion in Washington now about innovation and industrial policy and, and building out more infrastructure. Any lessons that aside from hoping that you have a really rich, brilliant engineer with a vision when trying to spark new innovation? You know, I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to understand why SpaceX was successful when so many other companies had failed. I think Liftoff does a good job of showing one approach to a successful startup and showing how difficult it is to succeed and how badly you've got to want it. Because Elon Musk clearly wanted it badly and his employees wanted it badly. And so they were willing to put everything on the line. That's the kind of mentality you have to have going into something like this. You have to realize that the challenges before you are enormous. That's why with a lot of launch companies today, you just don't quite see that dedication or commitment. It's much more marketing than real products. I'm naturally very skeptical of launch startups until you see real hardware going into space because it's just so easy to put out those vaporware and so hard to actually make the real stuff that works. 
how much of SpaceX's success would you say, obviously a big component of it was the sort of singular devotion and, and urgency that Elon Musk had, but it also seems like a whole lot of it was eventual US government support. I guess it has to be with any aerospace company, but do you think that there are any lessons in terms of maybe the US government should be more directed with how it chooses to support industries? Or do you think that aerospace is in, unique in that way that there's such high capital costs that you need a program or something like that? I think the most important thing that government should do is to recognize where the commercial space industry can do things better and adapt to that accordingly. The DOD has been pretty good about trying some things out when in the past they weren't. And NASA too. And there's now this vibrant commercial space industry. And it, so it's incumbent on the government to recognize that and take advantage of it. Because it is, in my opinion, the one advantage that the United States and NASA has over China's space industry at the moment is this vibrant commercial space sector. And so if you want to maintain an edge in space, you'd better harness that and you'd better support it. Because China is doing that, unquestionably. Corey and Eric, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks, Corey. I enjoyed the discussion. I really do think that movie would be something. The kids should be watching this movie instead of The Social Network. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom.